this story is one in which we can see from orcas through their own actions that they're not just sort of passive victims. They're doing things besides just sort of the role that's been ascribed to them. And particularly with an endangered or potentially endangered animal, there may be in terms of some sort of cultural scripts for what they're supposed to do, they're supposed to be sympathetic and sort of act, I guess, ladylike. <laughs> and they, they go where they're not supposed to. They do what they're not supposed to. And that ends up shaping the way that we understand them. is unladylike. I'm Kristen. Some might say this has been the summer of Taylor Swift's Eras tour or Beyonce's Renaissance, but another iconic queen really did it for me. And her name is White Gladys. White Gladys is an orca whale who you might have heard of. She went viral in late May for ringleading her pod to ramming and sinking a trio of yachts off the coast of Spain and Portugal. Many call these orca attacks, but I call it anti-capitalist feminist activism. Which, of course, I realize this whale behavior is not anti-capitalist feminist activism, but just stick with me on ladies. Several boats have been attacked in recent weeks. The whales apparently hit the rudders and disabled the boat. One ended up sinking no people have been hurt. Some scientists believe an orca named White Gladys suffered a traumatic injury from a boat and may be teaching other orcas how to attack similar vessels. Take a look at this older orca and calf who take turns slamming the hull and charging the rudder. Maybe this is just a lesson about humans and our impact on nature. Guys, could be, but they are smart. Yeah, very smart. smart. Orcas are smart, Robin Roberts, and so are their relatives. As a quick kind of zoological side note, orcas and killer whales, same thing. They are whales. They are what's called toothed whales or odontocetes, and they are also dolphins. They are the largest member of the group of animals known as dolphins. So all dolphins are whales. In case anyone gets confused about what's being referred to as a whale here, they're all whales. That's today's guest who knows a lot more about whales than I do. As I was Googling around to learn more about White Gladys, I came across a piece she wrote for Slate, headlined, Whales Have Attacked Plenty of Boats Before. This time is different. My name is Anna Guasco. I am a PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge, and I'm an environmental historian and cultural and historical geographer as well as environmental writer. Uh, My dissertation project uh, looks at the histories, stories, memories, and justice issues swirling around gray whale migration and conservation along the west coast of North America. And the reason that I look at that is uh, that I've been interested in stories about gray whales for a really long time. I'm actually from California, right along the area where they migrate. 
And I used to work at a national park where I heard stories about gray whales and about how their histories and how they interact differently in different places and at different times. And I just really wanted to know more. So that was really where it kind of came from was hearing these stories and going, where did all of this come from? Why are these histories so different or divergent or the stories so different? And what can I learn about those and what can those tell us about some bigger and broader issues? You heard it right on ladies. Yes, I am talking to an environmental historian of gray whales about orcas, even though, yes, orcas are gray whale predators. Chomp, chomp. Watch out for those odontoses. But as Anna will expertly explain to us, these matriarchal mammals share some important ecological relationships with humans and more important for our unladylike purposes, humans' relationships with both species contain fascinating undercurrents of gender and lessons in challenging binary perceptions in nature. I'm curious if there were any particular stories that really got your whale wheels <laughs> turning. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say it was kind of a combination of two stories. Um, so I was actually out on a boat on the water one day um, while I was working at Channel Islands National Park. And I heard someone on the loudspeaker of a boat I was on talking about how the whales that we were seeing on that winter day on the California coast, it was foggy, I think. These whales that we could see here in the California waters, we had to stay 100 yards away due to the Marine Mammal Protection Act. But if you followed these exact same whales, further down the coast to the lagoons of Mexico, where they give birth, you could touch and pet them. And they were called the friendly whale there. And the sort of second story that this was then paired with was that this is all the more remarkable because historically these same whales that are now known, at least in some places as friendly whales, were called the devil fish. Uh, and that they were called that because uh, they would defend themselves against attacks from commercial Yankee whalers. And they were known to be particularly ferocious in defending themselves and their calves. And I wanted to know, first of all, why were interactions so different across this sort of socially and politically constructed border? What sort of historical and legal and policy context were informing those different types of encounters? But also where did this story of the devil fish to the friendly whale come from? And how can we understand both its history and its contemporary relevance? Because I'm not a biologist. I don't know what the whales are doing. But I'm interested in why people want whales to be telling us certain things. And I want to put a pin in the evolution from devilfish to friendly whale for a moment and just ask about what matriarchy kind of means in the whale world? Yeah, that's a great question and one that I kind of wish I could explore more directly in my research. So I'll definitely be thinking about it more. But with gray whales in particular, this sort of devilfish narrative does relate to sort of maternal care, particularly because this devilfish narrative that emerged in the context of colonial Yankee whaling was often tied to mothers right? Mothers defending their calves to protect those calves from whaling. So there's this kind of maternal care angle of the devilfish. But there's also a maternal care angle of the idea of gray whales as friendly whales. Mm -hmm. So often when people talk about friendly whale encounters in the lagoons of Mexico, they specifically describe mothers and calves coming to boats. So the experience of seeing this pairing of mother and a calf and 
as a side note, a calf is the name for a baby whale. It's like a cow, cows and calves. So there's sort of this idea that that transformation from devilfish to friendly whale is also specifically a maternal transformation around sort of affection, love, care, and trust that's sort of baked into this mother-child bond and potentially passed on between generations. And I think that's something that people have been interested in with whales, certainly beyond gray whales. You certainly see that with killer whales in particular, which are known to be matriarchal cultures where often a, an elder female is sort of the leader of the group. There's structures of sort of learning and care and collective responsibilities shared across the group that are very largely female-led. So I think there's something quite interesting about matriarchy and motherhood in whale species. And that leads perfectly into White Gladys and the orcas. How did you first learn about White Gladys and her yacht ramming pod? Yeah, I think I started hearing about White Gladys when people kept sending me stories uh, sort of originally on Twitter of this killer whale or orca who was ramming yachts off the Iberian coast and knowing that I worked on whales and stories about whales and specifically whales as devilfish, people kept sort of pointing me towards them being like, have you seen this? Have you seen this? And of course I was fascinated. And one of the things I thought was, was quite fascinating is that this isn't the first time specifically that orcas have been running into boats. A couple of years back, there was this idea that kind of teenage orcas were um, messing around with boats in harbors in particular, uh, messing around with the rudders and that they seemed to think it was just fun, um, kind of letting off steam, attacking boats, you know, you got to do something with your time. <laughs> so I've been aware of these sort of earlier precedents, but it suddenly gained a lot of traction almost overnight. And that's because of a few very specific publicized, quote unquote, attacks on boats with sailing yachts off of the Iberian coast um, in the area of Spain and Portugal where white gladys and other killer whales were essentially attacking particularly i think the either the rudders or propellers of boats and one thing to note actually here is that sometimes people will substitute to just gladys for the sort of instigator of these attacks there's actually multiple gladyses or glad eye yeah <laughs> the research team that has been working on this group of whales and why they might be engaging in this type of behavior has termed a few of the females in the group as Gladys. So there's white Gladys, gray Gladys, black mm -hmm. Gladys. And the name that that comes from is a natural historian, I'm not for sure from exactly what century, but from a while ago, who had proposed a Latin name for killer whales early on that was essentially uh, the gladiator whale. So Gladys comes from gladiator. And Gladys and her crew, as they've sometimes been described, although it's sort of this fun, almost silly story, in part because no one was actually getting hurt, that should be noted. It also was sort of a mournful and bittersweet story because the researchers out of Portugal in particular who've been studying these whales suggested that white Gladys may have experienced some type of trauma, some type of negative interaction, perhaps getting hurt by a boat with this type of design and that it could be that this type of interaction with a boat was leading to sort of almost these preemptive attacks uh, out of this sort of fear or as sort of started to get sensationalized beyond what the researchers were saying, um, vengeance for the type of attack that she may have experienced. I think I first heard about White Gladys on 
a, a random podcast. It might have even been a comedy podcast. Someone was like, oh, my gosh, have you heard about these whales? There's this mama whale out there who's teaching her her calves how to ram yachts. And so as a feminist podcaster, I was immediately like, what? Okay, <laughs> I must find out everything. But is that piece of teaching their calves how to do this, is that a part of this as well? Yeah, I think the teaching element is definitely important. Um, I think if you had an individual whale who was doing this, there would still be a story there. Uh, you'd have a bit more of a classically Moby Dick story, mm -hmm. right? Um, because in Moby Dick, there's this idea of this individual one white whale. And in some ways, you can kind of see, I'm not a scholar of Moby Dick to be entirely direct. You can see the kind of masculinity embedded in that narrative with this one individual whaling captain who's sort of set against this one presumably male white whale, and they're kind of in this locked individualistic battle of, of egos and of abilities. Whereas um, with this story of White Gladys and her compatriots, her family members, her crew, there's this story of of sort of solidarity and connection that goes along these matrilineal lines that I think tells a different story. And that's something that the poet and theorist who has influenced my work, Alexis Pauline Gums, has highlighted is kind of how these matrilineal or maternal lineages of care and of solidarity that we can see reflected or manifested in different ways in marine mammals have a lot to teach us about maybe envisioning a society or culture or the stories that we tell about the ocean differently. Did anything in particular jump out to you about the internet's response to Gladys and her crew? Yeah, it's been fascinating. I will say I didn't quite expect the internet response to last as long as it has. When I first started thinking about this, I thought it was going to be like a one or two week joke on the internet, you know, send the orcas after them. <laughs> but really, we're still seeing an internet response to these orcas that's resonating across the entire summer. And I think that's quite interesting because this seems to have some staying power. What is happening with these orcas and the stories that can circulate around them really, I think, resonates with um, what people are experiencing more broadly. Uh, in their lives, the sort of idea of this anti-capitalist struggle that they're attacking yachts. They're not attacking just any boats. Uh, I think that this moment would have a lot less, it would be a lot less funny, and it would also have a lot less political resonance if the targets of the boats were different. So if it was primarily small fishers who were trying to just make a livelihood, uh, that would be a different story. And the fact that they seem to be particularly targeted on these kind of pleasure yachts and sailing vessels, uh, which the research is bearing out in terms of sort of seeing that that does seem to be the main target that these whales are going for. I think the idea that they're sort of having a, an attack on capitalism, on wealth, on opulence, and on waste is really quite interesting. And it's part of what's fun about the responses, but also I think part of what is powerful. There's been a lot of commentary about the orcas whether in um, the Iberian Peninsula region or elsewhere, as some other orcas have started to show some other similar behaviors that suggests we shouldn't anthropomorphize the whales or that the that it's wrong to say that the whales might be traumatized, so on. And I think 
for one thing, it's important to note that the, the trauma theory does come from local researchers who have been studying this group for a while. So I think that shouldn't be too discounted. But I also think it's important to note that there really is no description of animal behaviors by humans that isn't anthropomorphic. We're always going to be anthropomorphic when we're describing non-human animals. And even trying to describe them in less anthropomorphic ways is still putting our own projections onto them. So what I'm really interested in, and I would just like to say about these whales, is instead of not wanting to project onto them, I think it's important to be careful about how we project onto them and to pay attention to what it is that we want to project onto nature and think about why we're doing that instead of just entirely avoiding the reality of it altogether. And I do think that there's possibilities in this orca uprising moment to, to see something a little bit messier than that tired binary. Now that we're in the thick of summer, I'll be honest with you, I find it harder to cook. That's why I am thrilled to be able to open my fridge and choose a meal from Factor. Factor is America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit that can help you fuel up fast with flavorful and nutritious ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You'll save time, eat well, and hey, no cleanup. Factor offers menus to fit a variety of dietary lifestyles, from keto to calorie smart, vegan and veggie to protein plus. And if you're looking to mix it up, they have options like adding a protein to select veggie and vegan meals each week. Treat yourself to more than 34 weekly restaurant quality options like bruschetta shrimp risotto, green goddess chicken, and grilled steakhouse filet mignon ready in just two minutes? Yes, please. With Factor, you can also rest assured you're making a sustainable choice. They offset 100% of their delivery emissions and feature sustainably sourced seafood in all of their meals. This July, get Factor and enjoy eating well without the hassle. No prep, no mess. Why are you waiting? Head to factormeals.com slash unladylike50 and use code unladylike50 to get 50% off. That's code unladylike50 at factormeals.com slash unladylike50. And I will love you 50% more if you use that URL and promo code because it really does help the show. I mean, feed yourself, feed unladylike at the same time. Bon appetit. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This story and what's happened with these particular orcas, how does that resonate with your research on gray whales and that devilfish to friendly whale narrative evolution? 
the connection that I started seeing was that this sort of devilish behavior that was being celebrated around orcas really sounded quite a bit like the devilish behavior that had historically been seen with gray whales. As I mentioned earlier, gray whales were known as the devil fish from the mid-19th century. And they were known as the devil fish as the story goes. They were called that by colonial Yankee whalers who started whaling in primarily three lagoons in Mexico in the mid-19th century. And they actually had to stop whaling for a few years there because it was too difficult to specifically hunt the gray whale because it was so aggressive in defending itself and its calves. It would ram boats. It would pull men out of boats sort of by the, the ropes or the harpoons that had been thrown at them. And it was just too difficult and too much of a cost to try to hunt them. And it wasn't until a more advanced exploding harpoon gun was invented that the whalers were able to sort of return to the lagoons and, and try again. And um, that was sort of one of the first really intensive rounds of commercial whaling that brought gray whale population, not to the brink, but, but pretty low. And that was around the 1870s. And the official version uh, that I've critiqued in my work that I'll start with and then go back a little bit is that as conservation measures started to be implemented by around the 19, late 1930s or so, and gray whales started facing fewer threats from commercial whaling, from human interaction, they began to be able to trust people more. Shades of Moby Dick. They're hunting whales off the California coast. No harpoons, the most deadly weapon is a camera. The sightseeing boats can approach within a few yards before a whale will take off with a flip of his powerful tail. And by the 1970s, not only were they not attacking people and not acting devilish, they actually had transformed into this benevolent sort of gentle giant that was allowing people to touch and pet it in those same lagoons where that devilish behavior had occurred not even a century prior. So this narrative arc is obviously quite appealing. It's a really, it's a really lovely story of from devilfish to friendly whale. It's an extreme arc of the broader narrative that's often told about whales emerging out of the Save the Whales era of the 1970s and 80s of we used to hate whales, we used to hunt them, and now we love them and respect them. And that's a narrative that I generally want to contest because the notion that hunting or eating whales is inherently a form of hating or disrespecting whales is really quite problematic. It's very much rooted in specific Western understandings of relationships with whales as sort of they're the right way and there's a wrong way that only fits into this one box. It's very exclusionary, particularly to indigenous views about whaling and hunting. But specifically in the context of the gray whale, what I found is that the transition didn't actually really happen people had been seeing and even recognizing gray whales as acting in ways that we might describe as friendly as early as the 1890s, which was far before any conservation measures were being taken. And they were also encountering the same exact type of devilish behaviors and even sometimes describing it as that as late as the 1960s. So both of these versions were continuing to unfurl at sort of the timelines they weren't supposed to happen at. And these interactions have just been so much messier than the admittedly appealing story would suggest. 
So even though I'm a historian, I'm very interested in what the past has to tell us about the present and the future. And when we try to slot whales into sort of these very specific, quote unquote, natural categories of ways they're supposed to act um, and ways that we're supposed to act with them, we often limit the possibilities of what even healthy or sustainable relationships might look like and how they might look contradictory and confusing. And maybe embracing that contradiction is actually something that could be helpful. Something that I was also really intrigued by in your research is how does this story, this narrative of devilfish to friendly whale intersect with particular white masculinity constructs? That's a really interesting question. And it's one that I didn't necessarily set out to think about, but just kept standing out to me. So I think one of the examples that stands out to me the most is of the sort of three historical examples I can think of is the most recent. And I would kind of move backwards from there, which is these expeditions that were originally kind of a footnote in my research, but I just got so fascinated by it because almost no one had written about them in the 1950s, where white male American cardiologists and other medical professionals started trying to study gray whale hearts in order to understand human physiology, which as a quick side note, it's just not the most practical way to go about understanding anything about human cardiology. Whale hearts are really not that comparable. And certainly gray whales, I don't really know why you would choose them other than that they were close to the coast and easily accessible. Operation Heartbeat began in 1956 when Dr. Paul Dudley White and his colleagues first visited this lagoon. The research into heart pulsations was aided by the National Geographic Society. The tools of research were crossbows and hand-thrown harpoons with barbed heads. An approach was attempted by the motorboat Baena, but a crafty gray quickly submerged, went under the boat, and hit the Baena with its tail flukes. Water gushed into the Baena, and hungry sharks sensed a meal. So this idea of this cardiologist being this intrepid explorer going out on these waters with these hostile whales in a hostile desert environment, forging this kind of masculine identity on the waves instead of just being, you know, in the laboratory or in a, a library, he was out in the field uh, roughing it, doing what the whalers of yore would have done. And these expeditions stood out to me in terms of how much masculinity was quite clearly weaving through every aspect of representing and portraying the, not just the expeditions themselves, but the people undertaking these expeditions. And one thing I really noticed while I was looking at these coronary explorers, as one historic newspaper I looked at put it, was that they each seemed to be, uh, whether in the writing about the expeditions or the explorers themselves, referring back to earlier generations of explorers who had also had some type of field expedition experience with gray whales, where they had encountered either the devil fish or otherwise sort of roughed it out on the seas trying to meet these wily, mysterious animals. And as I was looking at this lines of remembrance, I noticed how much as each of these sort of historical figures got invoked by later ones, this idea of recapturing these glory days 
where men went out on the water and particularly independently proved themselves while also making discoveries seemed to be this really driving factor, even if it wasn't always the most accurate thing. Usually these men were not by themselves and it wasn't actually just men. And it wasn't just white men from the US who were doing these things, but that figure seemed to be a very important figure in nostalgic remembrance of colonial and masculine encounters with whales. Looking at it through a purely just feminist human lens, it's hard to not see sort of a delicious irony maybe in that masculine quest, finding this worthy adversary in what turns out to be this highly matriarchal species. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I do think these sorts of matrilineal lines of of relation and care in Wales really quite counter these narratives in ways that maybe at the time, those sort of people who are putting out these very masculinist narratives didn't quite see the irony of. But I think today is, mm-hmm. is almost fun to look at. And you actually do see some interesting things happening, um, particularly with the 19th century accounts of flipping a round of pronouns, where they seem to not be able to quite decide whether they want to represent whales as masculine or feminine, particularly around attacking males. They sort of suddenly see something switch to he, the enraged bull. When you're reading it, you're like, wait, wasn't that just a mother? So you actually can almost see maybe some sort of internal contradictions uh, around those pre-assigned gender roles that people want to slap onto nature that nature really doesn't always fit with. This episode is brought to you in part by BetterHelp. Both on the podcast and off, something I love to talk about is therapy. I love to share about my own therapy practice, which I've been in for years. I also love to talk to people who are therapy curious or or maybe even scared off from therapy. If you are therapy curious or are looking to switch things up, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. There are also text message only options, which some folks find to be especially helpful. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And listen, you can switch your therapist at any time for no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com unladylike today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash unladylike. So bring us back to the present. Why do whale stories from the 19th century to this past summer's fascination with these orcas, like why do these whale stories, why do they matter? That is a question that I think I will be trying to answer for quite a long time. But what I would say is that whales whether we're talking about gray whales, which are known for this kind of spectacular behavior of devilfish to friendly whale, but otherwise they're kind of known as actually rather boring whales in comparison to their more gregarious cousins of humpback whales, which are well known for their haunting songs or blue whales for being so large or orcas for being so organized and social and uh, matriarchal. 
all of these different kinds of whales have long been fascinating to people. And I think part of that has to do with just both the kind of charisma that they have, but also the alienness of whales. They live lives that are so different than ours in environments that are so different than human environments. And yet they also have these aspects of their lives that are so similar. If we think about maternal care in whale species and these long bonds between family members, there's something relatable and yet utterly unrelatable about whales that I think has often captured attention for various people in very different ways across time. And whales in particular uh, within Western environmental traditions emerged as a particularly potent symbol of particular lines of environmentalist thought in the 1970s and 80s. Save the whales. And I think that whether it's challenging this clean narrative arc of devilfish to friendly whale and showing how it's actually been so much messier than that and whales don't always fit in the stories we want them to fit, or whether it's white Gladys and the orcas who are ramming into yachts and maybe indirectly challenging capitalist structures. This moment of whale storytelling, for me at least, gives me hope about whale stories that matter for moving beyond kind of somewhat old messages of just whales are special and need to be protected and humans are terrible and we do everything off of the whales and it's just kind of this black and white binary of good and bad whales are good we're bad i think the stories that are emerging and that i'm really interested in trying to work towards telling and i'm excited to see other people telling as well move beyond that kind of structure and show how whales are constantly messing even the, messing up the stories we try to tell about them. And I think that listening to those matters for our relationships, not just with whales, but with non-human nature and with ecologies more broadly. I'm very curious if you have ever touched a gray whale. I have actually never been asked that, I don't think. Uh, I have not, but it's it's a question that I grappled with early on in my thesis of if I did go, would mm -hmm. I touch one? Uh, what do I think about touching whales? Because I'm not a biologist. Again, my, my work is not trying to figure out whether or not it's a good or bad thing to touch whales. Instead, I'm interested in, in why people want to touch whales and what people get out of that. But I have not personally touched a whale. For me, it's a bit of an ethically complicated question. Um, I certainly have smelled whales. That's, I think, the, the closest I've gotten is being able to smell the blow of a gray whale, which purportedly is one of the stinkiest blows of any of the baleen whales. So I do have that honor. So what does whale smell smell like? <laughs> fishy. <laughs> Salty and fishy. And gray whales, I, I probably will nerd out about gray whales here for a moment, but they're really unique in the way that they eat. Most whales sort of move through the water or go up to the surface. Gray whales go to the seafloor and shovel along the sediment, sort of stirring things up. And they leave these tracks that in some places can actually be seen from satellite. They're so intense. And it's possible that that is why they are particularly stinky, uh, because they're filter feeders and they're just basically stirring up the muck and everything that they don't eat comes out at some point. So I'm guessing there will probably not be like, you know, a luxury line of whale candle, the whale scented candle. 
<laughs> happening anytime soon. Probably not. Although it could smell a little similar to what some colleagues and I used to call fisherman's delight, uh, which was after we would feed the fish at, at my workplace. Um, we'd feed them squid and then we, we had a hand sanitizer that smelled like peony. So it was like squid and peony together. Fisherman's delight. Marine biologists, whale lovers, fishermen's delight perfumiers. I'd love to hear from you, ladies. Was anyone else captivated by White Gladys this summer? Do you have any hot tips about undersea matriarchies? Let me know. I want to hear it all. Hello at unladylike.co is where you can send me your emails or voice memos. Love to hear a voice memo. You can also DM me on Instagram at unladylikemedia. Thank you so much to Anna Guasco. Follow Anna on Twitter at Guasco Anna. You can also find links to her gray whale research on the source page for this episode at unladylike.co slash episodes. To support Unladylike directly, join the Unladies Room Patreon. On the latest Unladies Room bonus episode, I made a meal out of girl dinner. Mm-hmm. It is a fact I did. Was it delicious? Well, come find out. Patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. That's where you can subscribe and enjoy an all-you-can-listen buffet of weekly bonus episodes, uncut interviews, pop culture hot takes, and more. Unladylike is an Unladylike media production, executive produced, written, hosted, and edited by me, Kristen Conger. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Until next week, what is the most unladylike thing about you? Ooh. The first thing that comes to mind is how much I enjoy talking about and learning about whale earwax. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a lot of interesting things can be learned uh, from whale earwax, as well as from baleen, um, narwhal tusks, barnacles that live on whales, all sorts of research that essentially looks at these uh, biological materials or sort of records of whales' lives and existences that chart things like contaminants and pollutants or stress hormones. Uh, but I really think that the whale earwax one is the, the one that grosses people out the most and that people always want to go look up and see if it's as gross looking as they think it is. And I promise you, it is. It is? Okay, I, I'm yeah. Google imaging as soon as we get off this Zoom. I'm so excited. <laughs>